That's it. Uh, it's Christmas time. No, that's okay. You don't have to be as excited about it. But are you excited? Yeah, it's, a, it's okay. No, it's, it's a mixture. It's a blend, right? Because in, in some ways, we're like, maybe we fake it till we make it. Maybe we're, we're just like holly jolly crazed about it. Maybe we're somewhere in between whatever the spectrum is of Christmas. Here we are, Christmas time. And I guess uh, Nathan said, what, it's Christmas Eve morn? Yeah, morning, Christmas Eve morning. What do you call this? Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. The whole day is Christmas Eve. All day is Christmas Eve. Wow. Man, Father Time is rolling in his grave. Uh, that's a, none of that works. But uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, here we are. Listen, we've got a lot uh, happening in all of our lives because we've got Christmas Eve events that we do and traditions, and then tomorrow's Christmas Day, and, and some of you, we, we know a family, uh, some friends who uh, every, every the day after Christmas, they make tamales and sell and, and donate the money to racks. And so there's, there's all sorts of traditions and things going on. And, and if you're here, you know, then there's some sense in which, hey, we need to be at church. Like, we need to not skip church for Christmas because Christmas is all about the church, Christianity, about Jesus. But, yeah, like, there's some tense that, but we also need to understand, like, man, it's easy that our minds are so divided. There's so many things that we're thinking about that we got to do, that we got to get through. And, and this morning, we want to try to slow down. I encourage you to try to slow down. To, it's a big thing we say with our kids nowadays, just, hey, slow down and breathe. Or in Hebrew, we'd say, shema. Listen, hear, pay attention. I think God wants us to, to hear something this morning. I think the, the weeks of Advent aligned and things worked out to where instead of having more services this year around Christmas time, we actually have less. Um, this is our fourth Sunday in Advent, and it's also our last Sunday. Sometimes we get five, sometimes, and, and here we are. And so it's, it's interesting um, how the services lie. If you remember uh, three weeks ago, if I count right, doesn't matter. Um, I talked about hope, and we talked about how the gospel is greater than fear, and how everything in life comes back to fear and control and escape. And, and we actually talked about that neurological level at the very base of your brain. I don't want to repeat that sermon. You can go back and listen to it. But we acknowledge that, um, in general, the core function of our brain, the most basic human function, is fight or flight as a result of fear, as a result of stimuli. And then because of that fear, that puts us in a place of constantly controlling or escaping. And you can relate that to any addiction, any workaholicism, any video game thing, pot, whatever, pick your thing. But we control, we escape, right? And that's the thing. And so we talked about how the gospel is greater than fear. That King Jesus, the hope we have in Jesus, actually completely shifts the paradigm of fight or flight, of fear. It changes how we approach those things. Two weeks ago, Nathan talked about peace. And he talked about how the peace of Jesus is peace with God because... Jesus is God's presence with us, and now that presence is in us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And last week, Adam talked about joy. Say joy. joy. Yeah. Joy is an inward satisfaction in your soul rooted in what Christ has done. That's what Adam talked about. This week, today, we're going to talk a little bit about love. We've got a little bit to say about love and then how we respond to all this, because response especially matters today, because as we talk about the gospel, we've all got stuff to do. I mean, no matter what, every Sunday you got Monday coming, and unless Monday's your off day, Monday's just that groaning like, oh, Monday. But tomorrow, everyone's busy. Like, everyone's got stuff. Everyone's got Christmas plans. It's been my favorite question to ask people the last few days. Hey, what are you, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Like, Christmas is a few days. What do you do? And it's been so interesting to hear different people's plans, or sometimes you can see it on people's face where they're actually disappointed in the way the plans are happening or not happening. There's a tension there. 
or a joy or some hodgepodge cocktail of those things. If you would grab a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah 54 this morning and 2 Corinthians 5. And if you have to pick one of those, I would pick 2 Corinthians 5. If you're like, man, I can't handle two things at once. This is Christmas, David. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5 is your place. But we're also going to be in Isaiah 54. And if you know me well, you know we'll probably have 100 other verses in between there. But that's okay. Um, Isaiah 54 is where we're going to start. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black one in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. That's our gift to you. That's God's word. God wants to speak to you today. It's a, listen, I just have to say this. It's no accident that you're here. Whether you're visiting family or you're coming home from college or someone drug you here, if this is your first time, your 10th time, if you grew up here and now you're back for a little bit, it doesn't matter how it worked out. We believe that God orchestrated that you're here because God has all authority. Jesus actually said, his last words, are all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, so follow me, that's what he said. Go make disciples, live as I lived. And so God's brought you here. Let's get out the word, let's read it together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would guide this time as we read your word, as we listen to you. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Father, may your spirit move in this time. May your love compel us. Thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start talking, uh, spoiler, we're going to talk about love, because that's the only candle way I'm talking about. Love. Say love. love. Say love like a country song. Love. Oh, man, I like that. Some of you guys are quick. That was fun. I want to do more, but we're not. We're going to skip that. Sorry. Uh, that was fun. Hey, oh, okay. Um, here's here's what, what I want to talk about first. Uh, there's this phrase that's around my life all the time. It's, uh, what's your why? Have you heard this phrase? What's your why? And, and maybe, maybe you've heard it, maybe it's, it's come around, but this idea of what's your why is, especially it's in the fitness community, it's in the entrepreneurial community, it's in any sort of like, hey, you've got goals. I mean, it's the same thing in addiction community, in therapy, in counseling. It comes up everywhere. What's your why? Why do you do what you do? What's that thing that everything comes back to for you? In our staff, in my family, uh, close friends of mine, every year we do what's called VGAs, Vision, Goals, and Actions. And, and part of that is, you know, to set some sort of standard for reflection and growth. How do we grow? How do we know what's next? What's God telling us that we ought to do in, in, in becoming like Jesus and making his ways like ours in leading and shepherding as a husband, as a father, all these different things. But the most important part of our VGAs actually is, is typically just the vision. The vision shouldn't change. In fact, philosophically, we could say existentially, appropriate knowledge leads to appropriate action. And if you know anyone that has a struggle, anyone who's ever seen a therapist, any sort of counseling, all of those things are done to help understand what is the appropriate knowledge here. What's the lie? What's the junk? What is off? What's skewed? What's adulterate? And what's the truth? What's actually right? Appropriate knowledge leads to appropriate action. Your vision What's your why? What's the one thing that everything comes back to? It's the one thing that if it's shaken or broken, you'd be in big trouble. You'd fall apart. What holds it all together for you and keeps you focused? Possibly, what causes the greatest fear, anxiety, and anger in your life? As some theologians say, show me what causes you great fear, anxiety, and anger, and I'll show you your idol and what you put before the Lord. We could spend a ton of time on that. I want to, instead of asking what's your why, let's ask a different question. What's God's why? I mean, I've been to a lot of church services. 
I've done a lot of church services, and this is a church thing, right? This is my job. Here I am. I'm a pastor, right? And so it's just interesting to think through, like, we talk about these things like hope and joy and peace, but I think sometimes it makes sense, and, and you see it sometimes in Scripture and laments and things. It's a fair question to say, why? Why does God do this? Why is God so different from the other lesser gods in Scripture? Why is God above all other gods? Why is he the king? Why does he do what he does? What is God's why? What is the one thing that everything comes back to? And, and some, of, uh, some of my uh, theological friends of certain flavors would be so quick to say, it's about his glory. Everything comes back to, I'm sorry, that's uh, patronizing. I don't mean to make fun of those people. Sorry, that was rude. I didn't mean that. But the, it's attention. It's like, oh, it's all about his glory. And that's true. Certainly, the Bible all comes back to God's glory. But it'd be like asking one of my kids, say, dad, why are you my dad? Why do you dad the way you do? For my glory, son, for my seed to be spread and for people to live as David Newton minis forever. That, that, sir, there's some of that. I, I would hope my son is like me and better than me. My daughter's like me and better than me. There's some of that there. And so there's some glory aspect, obviously not ultimate glory, God's kabod, because that would crush me, right? But there's a deeper motivation that you see over and over in Scripture from God. God's why is love. And as, as cheesy as that may sound, as bumper stickers that can sound, as like, I get it, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But yet, I want us to take a minute to sit in that, because I submit that you don't believe God loves you. I put before you today that you and I, our greatest struggle in life is that we don't actually believe the gospel. We don't actually believe that God loves us. If we do, it would change everything about us. We wouldn't have this thing that sits in the corner. It's like, oh, that's my stinking pot of junk. I don't want people to know. It all comes back to we don't really understand God's why. Therefore, we don't really understand God. All problems in life come to a misunderstanding of who God is. God's why is love. We see this pretty directly and powerfully in Isaiah 54. Isaiah spans uh, this time where the prophet Isaiah is saying, Hey Israel, you've really messed this up. God said X and you did Y. God wanted left and you went right. It's just this constant, God said yes and you said no. You, you're really trashing the place up here, Israel. And so Isaiah is pushing this and he's saying, Hey, here's what's going to happen. Babylon, Assyria, bad junk, make your best explosion noise. Good enough, yeah. Man, it's so fun to have women make gun noises. It's one of my, like, it's so intuitive for boys to be like, eh, and then you ask most girls, hey, make your favorite gun noise. Pew, pew, like they don't know what to do, right? But it's, it's intuitive for us guys, like, you know, what's the gun sound like? Explosion, right? Okay, anyway, it's all gonna explode. And then Isaiah says, the other half, Isaiah says, hey, but there's hope. God is going to make it right. There's a Messiah who's going to come. And within some of this messianic hope, we get Isaiah 54. I wish we could read all of it and just spend 45 minutes on Isaiah 54, but we got other places to go. But we're going to read it together, starting in verse 4. Thinking about God's love. Think about this. God's why is he loves you. Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, and you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Automatically, we're seeing this husband language, this intimate masculine husband figure, and, and there's some interesting Hebrew here about some of their Hebrew words could, could look like some of the things that were worshipped by, by idols and, and by Baal and, and Asher, but then this word is a word that pulls us into, no, no, he's, he's a better husband. He's the true husband, right? And, and so we don't have time for that. But, but there's this intimate, loving language. Do you have a good marriage outside of love? Come on. Like this is all, so you read this like, oh, like a husband. Wait, I, I get that. I understand that. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. Compassion. The Hebrew word here is womb me. Say woo me. This is sign language for pregnant, right? Woo me. There's a womb. And it's this intimate idea of like a mother cares for you. It's a part of her. You are in her and she nourishes you and takes care of you because you're literally one with her. That's the word for compassion here. That's what compassion means. Some people translate compassion to suffer with. Apply that to being pregnant. Women, you ever been pregnant? Is it like suffering with the baby? Yeah, this is compassion. It's woo me. Now we get another word. We've had husband language. We have compassion. Compassion, woo me, mm, in there. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, say steadfast love, but my steadfast love will not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Husband, compassion, love, these things will not be removed from you. Why? Because of my covenant. God is saying, because of my commitment to you, my promises, my covenant, the things I've spoken, because I am faithful, because of who I am, not because of you are. You've made a mess of all this. Not because of you, because of who I am. Like a husband, like a mother with child in her womb. That is the love I have for you. Why? Why does God go through all these links to try to explain? Because his love is greater than we know. Can you fully describe the love of a mother and her child in the womb? Can you fully describe the love of a healthy marriage in, in relationship? No, you, it's, it's too deep. It's too beautiful. That's why I have all the country songs and hip-hop songs and every song in between explaining to us what love is. We can't describe this. It's, it's deep. It's intimate. There's a powerful thing there. This is God's why. He will restore and fix what is broken. Why? Because he loves. Because he loves us. In fact, this pulls directly from, in case you don't know, the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. They may not be the most famous verses to you, but they're the most famous verses to the Bible. If the Bible were to become a person and stand here, they'd say, oh, you know the most famous verses to me? Well, it's actually Exodus 30. That's how the Bible talks, by the way. The most famous verses to me. It's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. These are the most quoted verses, and you just heard some of this language. God defines himself. Who's God? Who is this God of the Bible? Who's Yahweh? Maybe you're in here and you're not a believer. You're like, man, there's all these different gods. You want to know the difference between, between all the different religions out there? Come, come to these verses. This is actually the God of the Bible, not, not this other lesser thing that all these other religions make it. Here's God, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate 
and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Oh, why does he have that punished part in there? Because if you truly love someone, you don't not punish them. Do you have kids? Like, have you been around? Do you have a dog? Do you have a creature? Right? You can't really punish a cat. You can spray or hiss at them. But anyway, if you have an animal or anyone that you take care of, anything that you cherish, punishment happens in love. Good punishment. Good correction. It happens still in the heart of love. God does what he does because he loves. 1 John 4, 8 makes it so obvious for us. God is love. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. What does it mean to know God? John tells us. God is love. And we have to pause and take a minute to talk about the tension. Because here's the thing. I can't harp on this enough. The fish doesn't know the muddy water he swims in. You can't ask the fish how dirty his home is because he doesn't know. It's his home. It's dirty, right? He doesn't understand how gross it is, or, or she, or whatever. I don't know. I don't know the gender of the fish in your mind. But uh, the fish doesn't understand. And, and the same thing here. When I say love, you import something into your mind immediately, whether it's Nicholas Sparks or Disney or some scripture verse or how daddy treated you or some things that mom did or something with uncle, like something comes into your mind and, and it's tainted and adulterated and twisted. And so as soon as we start talking about love, we're on different playing fields and our culture, nay, I would say d deeper to find that everyone talks about the culture, right? The Bible talks about the world, the flesh and the devil. And these things work in this obnoxious spinning wrecking ball to bring chaos into disorder. And isn't it interesting that if God's why is love, then every part about the world, the flesh, and the devil, the culture around you is constantly redefining love for you. It's constantly telling you love is something else. Love is what you make it. Love is relative. Love is love. Love is God. Like God is love. God is love. God is love. That's the definition and we see this through his actions, through who he is. He defines himself all through scripture. Like we just talked about Exodus, then we hit Isaiah, right, kind of the beginning, the middle, now we go more to the end in 1 John. The whole Bible is saying, the Lord is love. You want to understand love, look to God. Our culture, the world, the flesh, and the devil says, you want to understand love, look to yourself. What you feel, what you receive, what you understand as being a healthy human, that's what love is. I was talking, culturally, you know, the idea is um, love is God. We make, we make love, the ideal of love, whatever you say love, we make that our God, right? Which is so interesting to compare that to the role of Scripture and how constantly twisting things. Say it's self-evident, self-identifying. I was talking to a friend. I, I want to call him a friend. He's not, he's not a friend anymore, unfortunately. But as simply as I can say it, he's tragically just decided to live for the lies of the world. He's just given up on everything that, that he once knew. And, and man, I can't express all the things. I mean, he knew. Homie was reading Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and, and studying all the people. Spurgeon and, and C.S. Lewis. Just the guy was brilliant. And he just decided, I love the world and the patterns of this world and the lies. Anyway. And so, I reached out to him recently, and we're having a conversation, just trying to try and touch base. And he's just full of anger and fear. This whole conversation, and 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 I, I got painted just initially without even talking. I, I'm because I'm a Christian, especially because I'm a pastor. Um, then I'm a bigot, and and in this conversation, um, one of the the questions came up with. I said, well. well 
man, from what I see in Scripture, what I see in humanity, what I see in my marriage, what I see with parenting, like love is commitment and sacrifice. Say love is commitment and sacrifice. That is a definition that we use in this church, and I would encourage you to put that definition in your pocket and take it with you everywhere you go, because we know love is a commitment and sacrifice because that's who God is. That's who Jesus is. That's what we just read in Isaiah 54. All the rest of the verses we're going to read are about love being commitment and sacrifice. You love pizza, you love your spouse, but you love one of them differently because sacrifice and commitment looks different, right? And I really hope it's not for pizza, otherwise your relationship's toxic and you should fix that, right? So... I'm talking to my friend, he says, you know, I said, hey, I understand love to be commitment and sacrifice. Try and find common ground with him. And, and he said, well, that's exactly the definition a Christian bigot would come up with to control and crush others. And so I, man, sorry. So I said, I really love this guy. I said, hey, man, so what do you define love as? Help me, help me understand what love is. And he said, he said, I don't have time to explain something so obvious to a bigot like you because love is understood. Everyone knows what love is. Without saying it, he was saying love is self-evident. It's, it, it defines itself. It's, it's self-identifying. You know it when you've got it. Listen to me. Please hear this. Love is not self-evident. Love is not natural or intuitive. The chairs and couches of therapists all over the world are filled last week, this week, and every week to come with people who are constantly getting counseling and therapy because someone loved them. People crushing each other in the name of love. It's not really love. It's just a cultural twist. And again, it's interesting how evil does that, taking this thing that is the very nature of who God is, the why behind everything he does, and twists it to where we can't possibly see God because we've adulterated what he is, his very nature, who he is. Love is not self-identifying or natural intuitive. There is a desire in all of us to love and be loved. But there's also a desire in us to take care of ourselves, to be selfish. And if love is commitment and sacrifice, and our natural inclination is to take care of ourselves, we had a lot of explosion noises from my mouth this morning. We'll do it again, just in case you missed it. So who decides? Who decides what love is? The Bible tells us. God, God is love. Love is commitment and sacrifice. It's God stepping in to make things right. He steps in because of his commitment, because of who he is. He has the compassion of a mother with child. He has the love of a husband. He steps in to make things right through Jesus Christ. This is why John 3.16 tells us, as the kids read, Isaac or Hannah, one of them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved, Why? Why did God send Jesus? Ah, because he loves the world. Whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. What does that suggest? Is God's desire that you perish and have ending life? No, God's desire is that you should not perish, but that you should have eternal life. The Greek there is life of the ages. Starting now, life as it ought be forever. Not these broken, half-crap lives that we walk around in. Actual life. Real life. That's what God wants for you. Why? Because he loved the world. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love. How does God show his love? Why doesn't he just poke me on those and say, I love you. You're such a good David. What? How does God show his love? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God shows his love for us. How? 
why we were sinners. What, the word, what does the word sin mean? It's rebellion. It's pulling away. God says this, we do that. God says yes, we say no. It's this dance of like, uh-uh, no, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to do. You understand this. This is life. I don't have to explain sin to you fully because it's a natural thing. Of like, you know there are things you've had to ask for forgiveness for. There are things that you know that aren't right in the world. These things are sin, are powered by sin. God demonstrates his love for us. He shows us why we are sinners. Christ died for us. Love must be defined like anything meaningful. God is the source of love. He shows us exactly what love is in Jesus Christ. So what twists this? How does this get twisted? It seems to me, it's really hard to say, well, the opposite of love is this, that, and the other. I mean, you could say the opposite of love is apathy, and that's fine. But that gets confusing in how you define words. We could at least say there's a spectrum of things that are not loving that tend to be enemies of love. Pride, apathy, indifference, insecurity, fear. And, and interestingly enough, as we start unpacking what twists love, what causes breakdowns in love, we see this, that, that originally in Scripture, we rebelled against God. Adam and Eve were, were given everything a presence with God. They were given fullness of life in God. They knew exactly what God expected of them because he was their creator and he told them. And they had the presence, the relationship with him, and they were fed a lie. And that created fear, fight or flight. I'm going to take control or I'm going to escape. And they do both, interestingly enough. They take the fruit they rebel against God so they could be like God, so they could be above, so they could usurp God and decide for themselves. And not only do they take the fruit trying to usurp God themselves, then once they recognize it, they don't go to God, they hide from God. They escape. This is life. Fight or flight. Escape, control, fear. All because of pride. These stories go on and on in Scripture. The Tower of Babel, fear, pride. Israel's idolatry. Man, God, God said this, but Canaanite gods are, are doing some pretty good things for them, so we need Baal and Asherah, so we're going to start worshiping these gods. We're going to mix bag it. That is the struggle of our culture, by the way. More than anything, I'm not concerned that all of us are going to just drop Christianity and go find another faith. The big struggle as a shepherd, as all shepherds say, the big struggle in our church is this mixing that Israel always had. Yeah, we want Yahweh, but we got all these other things that are kind of important too, and so, eh, you know, this. we're not really following and loving the Lord. We're controlling the Lord. And then we're escaping him. We get away from church, we get away from others because we, ah, we don't want to deal with the fact that we, we can't control God, but we don't want to do what he says. It's interesting that if God's why is love and he's pouring love out on us, our proclivity is to take fear, scarcity mentality, insecurity, pride. I'm going to take, I'm going to control this is not love. But God steps into all this and he says, I'm going to make this right through my commitment, through my sacrifice. I'm going to make this right. That's love. Not taking for himself, but giving for God so loved the world that he gave. Milton Vincent writes this. He's a scholar, theologian. He says, pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Apart from pride, I could have a better relationship with myself and others because the gospel destroys pride and all of a sudden I have a right relationship. What does this mean? We say gospel. Tim Keller has a great quote that I think helps. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved 
and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. See, pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel because the gospel is love. The gospel is God's character, who God is, coming and giving commitment and sacrifice, true love, so that we can actually have life. He says, you're broken, you're distant, you've messed up. You're not going to come to me and make it right. I'm going to come to you and make it right. And we get this when we think about all meaningful relationships. When we think about friendships and forgiveness or parenting or whatever, we know that there's something that needs to be made right. Something has to be sacrificed because of the commitment. That's why relationships die, because you, you don't want to sacrifice. You don't have commitment. The love is gone. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. See, we sinned by taking from the tree, taking what is ours, what we wanted, whereas Jesus purposely puts himself on the tree so that our sins could be absolved, so he could take on our punishment. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love to us in this, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we do? Right, we've got this service here, and we're doing this, this Christmas thing, and, and we're hearing about love, and we've talked about love a lot up here. So you've heard some of these things you've heard a thousand times, right? Um, what do we do with this? And I've been pushed a lot with that this, the last few weeks, actually. You know, you know these things to be true, but what do you do? Because sometimes it's just hard, and sometimes things go really poorly. What do we do? 2 Corinthians 5 comes to me, and there are two ways to, to talk about 2 Corinthians 5. I'd like to talk about it very swiftly in the context of Paul talking about himself and Apollos and Titus and Timothy and his boys and, and how he's talking about But But I think that also God gave us scripture to ripple out for us to understand that there's, there's a goal and a standard here even beyond that. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels, or some translations say controls us. The love of Christ compels, controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are compelled by love. So interesting to me that the songs and poems and great stories of all human history has a compelling of love in it, has a controlling of love. Uh, you think of, think of all these different things that get mixed into our popular stories. Love is at the core pulling us in and we're trying to define and understand. Jesus is love. God gives us the definition of love through someone's life, death, and resurrection, through his commitment and sacrifice. In your face, it is shown to you by who Jesus is. And here it says, the love of Christ compels us. Christ died for us, so we live for him. Why? Why would we live for him? Because he is love. He is life. He is the source of all things. He's joy. He's peace. Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything. The love of Christ compels us. He died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but to live for him who died. This rules out all of our pride and fear. In fact, 1 John tells us, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Love rules out your fear, your anxiety, your insecurities, all these things that weigh us down, our fight or flight. Love rules that out. Because Jesus took on your punishment. Because Jesus is love. Listen, 
Um, I really, uh, I feel both very loved and burdened, frustrated, happy, just such a range of emotions about how many people ask me the last several weeks, how you doing? How are things going? Like, you don't want to just say, not good. Things are terrible. Thanks for asking. I don't want the conversation. Right? And so I say, ah, good? Ah, that's a lie. I'm not a buffoon. I'm not going to lie to you. So, okay. It happened literally this morning. How are you doing? Okay. And their response, so not good. <laughs> it's like, ah, you know, it's so hard. And it's not that I'm annoyed by that. It's really loving, but some things are just hard. And, and, and things come up in life when, when things pile up and people die unexpectedly and ideals get crushed and whatever it is, depression or tension or relapse, things just come on you and you're just like, ah, why do I do this? Why? Why do I keep going? Why would I continue to bear this load? Why would I continue the, 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 the anything? You can put yourself in there. Why do you continue in the marriage? Why do you continue in the parenting? It's hard. These things are terribly hard. Why would you continue pastoring? It's hard. Why would you keep up at your job? Why would you help homeless people? Why? The love of Christ compels me <laughs> because one man died and because he died, I can live and you can live. And there is no life outside of that. The why of your life has to be Jesus. It's not some cutesy thing we keep throwing out every week to say Jesus is everything. We say it every week so that you might stink and believe it. You might walk out of these doors and decide, hey, I should drive differently. I should budget differently. I should approach addiction differently. I should approach sex differently. I should approach marriage differently. Because Jesus is everything. Because the love of Christ compels us. Because God's why is love. He does what he does because he loves you. And if that's not your why in response, then you could be complete. You certainly are missing out on what it means to truly live. No matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself in this service, whether you're like, this is longer than I thought it would be, or you're like, gosh, it's hot in here, or you're like, man, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard, wherever you're at. If this is your new here, man... If you've never been, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe any of this, can I just talk to you? Listen, I'm really glad you're here. And that's not like, pastor, ooh, I hope you join and start giving. Like, no, no, no. I'm glad you're here because it's hard. It's really hard to come with a family or people you love or people that you invited and sit through someone like just intensely, violently, maybe I don't know how you describe how I preach, but like intensely explaining something and you're just like, gosh, this is all stupid and it's hard. And so I'm glad you're here because that takes a lot of fortitude. Well, it takes a lot. And so I'm glad you're here. I also want to say that, that it's hard being here when things are hard. And, and to pretend, like, ah, this is, I'm here, you know, we're doing the Christmas thing, holly jolly and all. I understand how hard that is. I also know that nothing happens by accident. And if God does what he does for his glory because he loves you, because he loves us, and he tells us that really the only life to be living is in Jesus. And Jesus tells us that, that all of life is loving him and loving others. Now all of a sudden we understand, man, the whole reason any of us are here, whether we're struggling, whether we're happy, whether we're hot or we're bored, or whatever, we're here because God loves us, because he wants to speak to us. That's why you're in this room right now. Even if you don't believe it. That's so fascinating. That's how much God loves you. You don't believe, you don't care, you wish we'd shut up about this whole God thing. 
God's still doing it because he loves you and he wants you here. He's not letting you push him away. He's still leaning in. You might be listening to this weeks from now. God's leaning into you because he loves you. The love of Christ compels us. That's why I can breathe a little deeper. That's why I can wake up tomorrow morning. That's why I can keep doing what I do because the love of Christ compels me because one man died and through his death we can only live. There's only life because of Jesus. I want you to know that specifically Jesus prayed for you. If you're here today, if you're hearing the gospel, Jesus prayed for you. We'll get there eventually as we've been going through John, but I want to begin closing. I say begin closing. Don't come up here yet. Who knows how long closing takes? But we're going to read John 17, and we're going to move towards how we respond. John 17, verse 20. It's called the high priestly prayer. Say high priestly prayer. Okay, but say it like it's really powerful. Yes! Hey, get this. This is Jesus' last prayer that we have before he goes and dies. So you'd think the things that Jesus talks to the Father about, I and the Father are one, right? And Jesus is, is directly, intimately connected with God in a way we can't fully understand. He calls him Father, but he's, he's also one with him, and we've covered that in other sermons. But you'd think this prayer really matters. Here's how he prays for you. I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for you. What a powerful thought. That struck me so hard yesterday. Like, whoa, hold on. Jesus, all of you, everyone who's hearing the gospel, Jesus prayed for that. He prayed that it would ripple to you, and it's happening. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you have sent me. Verse 26, lean in. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The last thing Jesus prays, the last thing that God orchestrated as Jesus' prayer for us to be reading in the scriptures, the eternal word of God, it says that we would believe that the Father loved us, that his love is in us, and that Jesus is in us. That love is in us and Jesus. Jesus is our peace because he is in us. Jesus is joy because he is in us. Jesus is our hope because he is in us. And why did he do all this? So that the Father's love would be in us. So that Jesus' presence would be in us. So what do we do with this? Love in your face. God is love. He's in you. Maybe you believe, maybe you don't believe. What do you do with this? Man, I struggle with that. Because I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What's the next thing? How do I go? What do I think this analogy helps. If uh, Lee Idle and Jim Dixon were like, hey David, 
We are sending your family to a tropical island. I love tropical islands. I say that. I've never been to a tropical island. Maybe I'd hate it. But I love to be just hot and sweaty and hot weather. I love fruit and, and kiwi and coconut. I just, gosh, tropical island sounds incredible. So Lee Idle and Jim Dixon are like, hey, all expenses paid. You and your family go to the tropical island. And so we leave the blistering evil cold of Missouri. And we get on a plane. We pack our bags. That's the plane noises. A lot, lot of onomatopoeia this morning. And that's onomatopoeia, right? right? I don't know. Um, and so we're there. And now we're in the tropical island. And we've got this beautiful uh, secluded uh, place. It's like a, a VRBO Airbnb. And it's on the beach. It's got this giant balcony with the hammock and all these things. And we're there. And we can see the ocean. It's so beautiful. And we're there. And I don't wear flip-flops because I think they're really unathletic and stupid. But so I'm there barefoot, right? Because that's primal and the way God created us. And I'm just... So I call up Jim and Lee. Hey, we're here. What do we do? What, what do we do? It would be so silly. I mean, they could say, oh, I mean, go parasailing and walk on the beach and enjoy the sun and, and smell the ocean. They could list all those things. But really what they'd want to say is, be, enjoy it, live in it, take it in, live, live in the tropical island, live, take it in. When we say, what do I do with God is love and Jesus is in me? The first thing, this goes back to what we said from the beginning. I submit all of our problems. We don't really believe the gospel. We don't really believe that God loves us. Do you believe God loves you? We're so often asking, what do I do? What do I do? Do I need this new, new devotional? Max Licato wrote a new thing. And Dallas Willard's got some quotes. And Pastor David tucked in his shirt. And like, what do I do? What do I do? Tell me what to do, Pastor Adam. Like, what if we just rested in God's love? What if we looked to him and opened and just received? An enemy to love is pride, fear, anxiety, things that are about taking, controlling, gaining. What if we just humbly received? Said, oh, God, I'm going to live in your love. You cannot love. You cannot truly live unless you humbly open your hands to Jesus and follow him. And I hope that tickles, that pricks, that hits some sort of healthy insecurity in you that says, man, maybe I don't fully know what it means to live. Maybe I don't fully understand marriage. Maybe I don't fully understand parenting. Maybe I don't fully understand my addiction. Maybe I don't fully understand my job. Maybe all these struggles I'm having, maybe, maybe it's because I don't really believe God loves me. I don't really receive and submit to his love. We're gonna have two responses this morning. Uh, one coming in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to sing a famous Christmas hymn. Uh, and so the band's going to come forward, and, and I want to unpack a little bit of, of the first response. The first response that we're going to do, I would encourage you to live in it, to accept it, to receive it, to believe that God showed you his love for you because even though you didn't deserve it, you sinned against him, you rebelled against him, he died for you anyway. And even if you're too prideful to believe that he died for you, even if you're too, too insecure, fearful to believe there is a God who cares and loves you, what if you just took a moment to try, to put 0.001% of your belief, your, your acknowledgement, just open your hands, or maybe open your fingers, this is all you got. Open up and say, man, what if there is a God who loves me? What if all my paradigm for loving and living and what I think is my why and what I think I should go for, what if it's broken in some way? How would I know? Well, there's a God who created you. There's a God who loves you. 
And no matter whether you're the most mature Christian in the room or not a believer or the most broken person here, God's message to you is the same. Love me. Rest in my love. Follow Jesus. Every night, most nights, uh, parents want to say we do things every night, but we really mean most nights because some nights are just a nightmare. But um, every night when we put our kids to bed, most nights, um, I have this dialogue with our kids, and sometimes Nikki does it. I've talked about it before, put on the screen, and sometimes we reduce it because, you know, it's bedtime, go to bed. Mom and I want to hang out, whatever. But um, we have this exchange. I don't want to embarrass my kids by asking them to repeat it now, but I say, Cohen, do you see my eyes? Asher, do you see my eyes? Elsie, Bear, do you see my eyes? And they all say, yes, yes. I don't say it to Titus because he doesn't respond. But do you see my eyes? Do you believe that I love you? And they say, yes. Do you believe that I love you no matter what good things you do? That's important because my love isn't based off how good they are. And they say, yes. Do you believe I love you no matter what bad things you do? Because my love is not based off how good or bad they are. They say, yes. Who else loves you like that? God. How do we know God loves us? Because of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus, they, it's funny, we have an inside joke on this one. They say something slightly different, and then over the years they've made fun of me that I always correct them. And I guess they always say one thing, and I always say, that's right, he rescues us from our sins. And so sometimes Cohen, he'll crack a little snarky smile and say, he rescued us from our, or whatever, he says what I say. But that's the point. What, what did Jesus do for us? Well, he rescued us from our sins. Does God love you even more than I do? They say yes. And I say, and this is where we shorten it. Sometimes I just say this. This is the last thing I say as I close the door. Rest in God's love. Rest in Jesus. I submit that all of us need to rest. You're too busy. You've got so much going on. Your brain, your body, your, your, you just got so much going on. And even if you don't think you got a lot going on, you're trying to amp yourself up because you feel guilty for not having enough going on. What if you rested in his love? What if you believed that he loved you? 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As we sing these words... Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, his gospel's peace. I would encourage you to do this. Open your hands and believe that he loves you. You can have no life, you can have no love apart from him. Accept his love, receive his love. God, I pray right now as we, we stand and we respond, I ask that you would, I pray that, that your love would compel us. I pray for those in the room who, who don't have a, a paradigm or, or a thought for your love, that you would continue to be piercing their hearts by the power of your spirit. You'd be breaking down the lies, the deceit, the things, the, the, the pride, the, anything that evil would put, that our flesh would put to prevent us from seeing you. God, I pray for everyone in this room that we would breathe deeply in your love that we would be compelled, controlled by your love as perfectly seen and defined by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Guide us as we respond. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. If you need to pray, we'll be down here.